Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. saying in our culture, maybe you've used it uh, before from time to time, goes something generally like this. When there's a bunch of circumstances, things happening one after another that are somewhat extraordinary or, or unusual, you might say something like, well, nothing would surprise me now, right? Like, no, have you ever been in a situation where you're like, everything just keeps falling? Oftentimes, it's sort of in the negative, right? A bunch of things have happened, and you're like, well, nothing, nothing could surprise me now. When I was a youth pastor and I was transitioning to the role of campus pastor, um, Tom Ward and Gretchen were taking over the leadership of, of high school ministry. And, and I had one summer to kind of wrap things up and we were running our student missions trips. It was an exciting time. And I was handing off leadership to Gretchen and Tom and Tom was leading our team to uh, Ecuador. And so I was still kind of bouncing around from trip to trip and I flew down to Ecuador. They had already been there and catch up with them. And it was just, a, it was a meaningful time. I got to encourage him and try to train him in this role that he was taking on. And while we were there, um, a series of unfortunate events started to kind of unfold. Um, one night I'm working with the team up on the side of the mountain and all of a sudden, kind of as if out of nowhere, all the Ecuadorian staff just started sprinting down the hill. And I was like, well, that's odd, you know? But I didn't, I was oblivious to what was going on. I just kind of moseyed on down. I got down to the hill and I could see that the camp, the place where we stayed was on fire. The, there was a forest fire. Um, and, and everybody was working to try to move dirt to put stuff out. And pretty soon uh, the Ecuadorian fire department showed up and, and it, was, it was significant. It took a couple days to kind of get it under control. And so we're communicating home with parents, families, letting them know we're all safe. But we decided, you know what, we were going to go to the jungle and do this in, in about a week. So let's just move that part of the experience up. We'll leave in the morning. We'll get the buses here early and, and we'll head out. And so we load all the students up. There's probably about 50 on the team and we're heading into the jungle. We get to this little town on the edge of the jungle called Banos, which is Spanish for bath. It's, they've got hot springs there. And, um, and we just, traffic just comes to a screeching halt. Like you're not going forward, you're not going backward, there's nowhere to go. And so, and this has happened from time to time on these trips, it's not unfamiliar, but we, this existed, this went on for a couple hours. Finally hear that there's been a mudslide on the road and that we're not going anywhere anytime soon. So we kind of send the students out, go, go grab some lunch or some coffee or whatever, if you're just trying to kill time while we figure out what to do. Later here, this, is, this road's not gonna be open uh, for a day or two. So we found a hostel, we got a place to stay over, overnight and Gary unpacked. And then we hear in the, in the middle of the night or early the next morning that there had been a separate mudslide behind us on the road. And so we were basically like locked into this town and I just kind of looked at Tom like what did you do man like you know, this is the first time and I remember literally saying to him it's like if we're driving back and every single wheel falls off the bus simultaneously like I it won't surprise me at this point 
It's like apparently God has designed this in such a way that I can train you on every possible scenario in the confines of like a week and a half. Think for a moment about everything that the disciples have experienced in their time with Jesus up to this point. And ask yourself the question, like, what would, what would surprise them? This, is, this, lost is, this list is not exhaustive, um, but just at the very outset of Jesus' ministry, chapter 1, verse 34, the way Mark describes his work, he says he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. So this is the introduction to what it's like to hang out with Jesus, what he's doing. What follows is we see a man with leprosy who totally uh, overcomes every cultural norm, inappropriately approaches Jesus. Jesus in, in, uh, is, um, overcomes every religious norm and actually touches the man. And, and what's miraculous is that instead of Jesus becoming ceremonially unclean, this man is clean and he's healed of his leprosy and everybody's amazed. Four friends have a, a, a friend who's paralytic. They rip off a roof to get their friend to Jesus. He's lowered to the feet of Jesus and Jesus looks at the man on the mat and says, your sins are forgiven. It's incredible. And just to validate the point, he says, you know what, take up your mat and walk. As that was the lesser of the two miracles in that moment. He's in the synagogue on, on the Sabbath. There's a man there who, it says, Scripture says, has a withered hand, and Jesus, Jesus speaks to him, and he extends his hand out straight. It's healed. And just prior to that, uh, also on the Sabbath, Jesus had said directly to the Pharisees, so the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. So now at this point, there's a stir that has built, and it's pretty significant. And some are loving it, and others are pretty irritated by it. The disciples after this are out on the Sea of Galilee in a boat, something they've done a thousand times before when a storm overtakes them. They're fearing for their lives. Jesus is a sound asleep at the front of the boat. And they wake him up. And Jesus simply says, peace, be still. He rebukes the wind and the waves and they obey him. We're going to come back to this story in a minute. Chapter 5 is a series of just incredible things. There's a, a man who's tormented by a demon living in a graveyard alone, out of control entirely, and Jesus sets him free. There's a woman who has for 12 years suffered from internal bleeding, exhausted every resource at her disposal and made no progress, and she just touches Jesus unbeknownst to him, and she's healed. Jesus actually calls her out. He exemplifies her model of faith. There's a man who's desperate for his 12-year-old daughter, and he gets the news that, that they're too late, and that she passed away. Jesus goes to his house and tells the people there, she's, she's not dead. She's only sleeping, and, and speaks life back into this Jairus's 12-year-old daughter. And if any of this isn't enough, the disciples have just come from this experience where thousands upon thousands of people 
are gathered together to hear Jesus teach, hoping that he will touch them and heal them and restore them, listening to his message, listening to this proclamation of the gospel. It gets late at night and the disciples are like, hey, people are getting hungry. Let's, let's send them away to go get something to eat. And Jesus responds and says, you feed them. And they scrounge together everything they have, a, a couple fish and five loaves of bread. And they bring it to Jesus. And Jesus, it says, it blesses it. And then he multiplies it. Upwards of 10 to 15,000 people are fed that day. They have a front row seat to all of this. Right? If, you, if you imagine you've seen all of this unfold, what could possibly surprise you at this point? Walking on water. It's walking on water. That's the answer. Like the, this next experience that they have, again, after all of this, it totally catches them off guard. And so I actually want to go back. I want to go back into Mark chapter four, and I want to look at this last encounter on the Sea of Galilee. So this is like previously on the Sea of Galilee. And on the top of, if you have your journals, it's at the top of page 28, um, Mark chapter 4, verse 35. I, I, I think this is significant to what we're going to look at today. It says, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. All right, who, who is this? This, this? So the last time the disciples were with Jesus in this manner out on the Sea of Galilee, they're, they're seeing this incredible demonstration of God's power. Remember, if you talked about this, there's this correlation between what Jesus does in miraculous and profound ways and this response of of fear. They're, they're, they see his power unfold, and I think like it would for any of us, there's this sense of we're not sure what to do with this. And so the last time they're on this Sea of Galilee, they're, they're processing this question, who then is this that, that the wind and the sea obey him? And then now when they're back out in the sea, Jesus is going to clarify, he's going to reveal to them in greater detail exactly who he is. So fast forward now to Mark chapter 6. Jesus has just fed the 5,000. He is now dispersing them, sending them away. And this is where we pick up the story. Verse 45 on, on uh, midway through page 40. It says, immediately... He made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out to sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, 
for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and he cried out, for they saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. See, this encounter here on the Sea of Galilee is revealing to us, and I think, I think Mark has this in mind. Of course, that's speculative on my point. But I think it's revealing the very question that the disciples were asking the last time they saw Jesus do something miraculous out on the water. And so what I want to do is I just want to talk about what does this, this encounter, this event, reveal about the nature of Jesus? What do we discover about who Jesus is and what unfolds in this text? And so there's four things that stand out to me, right? I threw you off right there by having four points, didn't I? Like some of you, you've already messed up your outlines for the day. I uh, added one. The first thing we see. Jesus is revealed in this encounter as the one who sins. He is the one who sins. I, uh, I remember I was telling you kind of the last trip I took as, as a youth pastor to Ecuador. Well, the first trip I ever took, I was 22 years old. This is 1998. I was leading a group of middle school students on a, a canoe trip on the Wisconsin River. Um, I, like every youth pastor, it's like I wanted to make a good impression, not only with the students, with the parents. So I made sure I had everything in line. And one of my students had uh, an injury on his thumb and cut it pretty severely. And so as a result, he had to take medication regularly to make sure there was no infection and all that sort of stuff. So I worked all that out. He was going to keep it in his bag. And we set out on the trip. We canoed for maybe an hour and a half or so down river set up campsite on a sandbar first evening goes great we're having a ton of fun kids are loving it i'm getting to know them and the next morning comes and i wake up and i say to this kid i said hey make sure you take your medicine he starts to rifle through his bag and 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 he says i forgot it in the car i said okay no worries i go i talk to the staff they said well the only way to get back there is to canoe and we got a canoe back up river well turns out that's a whole different deal than canoeing downriver. I mean, it took, it took every ounce of energy. We were exhausted. It took a few hours to get all the way back up river. We get there, we look through the car, we can't find anything. Call his mom, I say, hey, his medication is missing. Um, can you call this pharmacy? It was about 45 minutes away. We drove, picked up his prescription, got back, canoed back down river. I get there. And, and I um, say to the kid, hey, no worries, we got your medicine. He's like, oh, no, 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 it's okay. I found it in my back. Okay. <laughs> and I remember, maybe you've experienced this at some time. When you find yourself in difficult circumstances, you don't always feel great about the person who put you there, right? Look at verse 45 again. It says, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. Some translations will uh, translate that word as he compelled them to go. 
The Greek term carries a sense of force or urgency. When it says he made them, he's, it's like a pressing necessity. And, and I'm going to address this sense of urgency that Jesus has with regarding his disciples later on in this sermon, but at this point, I simply want us to recognize that the disciples, the situation they find themselves adrift on the Sea of Galilee, fighting against the wind is because it's in response to, it's out of obedience to where Jesus sent them. And I think it's important that we catch this. They're in this situation because Jesus sent them out. The assumption that I, I sometimes operate under is that when I think about what it means to follow Jesus is that I've got the wind at my back. Or conversely, that the presence of a headwind means that I'm in the wrong place. And do you ever view life through that set of lens? It's, by the way, a very Western, very American, and somewhat modern view of faith. It's a, it's a perspective that we struggle with here, but historically, it's not how the church has understood what it means to follow Jesus. Do you ever look at your situation and, and get angry with the one who put you there. I think as we continue to talk about what it means for you and I to follow Jesus as our king, I think we have to be honest about what that means. That that, that isn't going to mean it's always up and to the right. It doesn't mean that it's smooth sailing. Sometimes, in fact, it means that you have given everything that you have to give and you're stuck in the same place. But what we discover in this passage is that Jesus has a purpose. In other words, Jesus has put the disciples in this place, in this moment, in the midst of the struggle, and they're there for a reason. We can see this encounter. We have the perspective of looking at at Mark's gospel and seeing all that unfolds and we can discover that Jesus is, is, has an agenda that he wants to accomplish in the disciples' life. And this agenda is that Jesus wants to reveal more of himself to them. Right? That he's seeking to continue to answer that question in their lives of who he is. Perhaps he intends to do the same for us. And moments when we find ourselves struggle, when, when there's a headwind and we've given everything we have to give and we feel stuck in the same place. Just as a sidebar here, notice verse 46. It simply says that after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Is this interesting to note here that, that Mark's gospel, he records three specific moments when Jesus withdrew to pray. The first is in, in Mark chapter one, verse 35, when Jesus is starting the process of gathering the men that we'll think of as his disciples, that, that he calls his followers, the ones that he's gonna train and equip in the process of, of what it means to follow him. The third time is when he is in the garden of Gethsemane, when it's at the culmination of his mission, when the cross is just in front of him. And then there's this moment. There's this moment here where Mark, I believe, is, 
emphasizing critical moments in the mission of Jesus by noting that in these moments he withdrew to pray. He's, he's acknowledging the significance of what's happening here with regards to ultimately what he came to do and to what the disciples understood about him, what is unfolding. And again, this is, we have to think about this as a revealing. They're getting bits and pieces at a time and they're slowly starting to connect it together. But we're looking at this with the end in mind. They don't, they don't have that. And so they're trying to make sense of it. So he's the one who sends. Secondly, he's the one who sees. He's the one who sees. Verse 47, when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. It says it was about the fourth watch of the night. We know the, the power of, of being recognized, of being acknowledged. In fact, when we, we think about every Sunday morning, um, myself and some staff gather together and we pray in my office. And one of the things that we pray for consistently is that everyone who walks through these doors would feel seen, would feel recognized, would, would discover a place of belonging. And we know that we don't do that perfectly and, and, and we share in the work of that together, but we pray for that actively. Like when somebody comes in these doors, particularly if they're coming in for the first time, Lord, let somebody see them. Let somebody say hello to them. Let somebody say, hey, do you have somebody to sit with? If they feel like there's this place of belonging, it's like we see you. And to be seen is a powerful thing to be visible and recognized. See, there's a debate here a little bit about the nature of this scene. If Jesus is just sitting on the side of the mountain and he has the natural perspective out on the Sea of Galilee to see what's unfolding, or if this is a supernatural seeing of the disciples. Given the fact that Mark records that this is the middle of the night between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. and that the disciples are likely miles away from Jesus at this point, and my, my sense is that it's probably the latter. But in either case, the point really is not how he sees, but more so the fact that his seeing is representative of who he is. And his seeing is representative of what he does. And once again, this quality of Jesus that Mark, I think, is very intentional about, uh, intentional about recognizing and he, he develops it throughout his gospel because it reflects a quality that is unique to God. That he sees the details of our life. Think all the way back to the Old Testament. Uh, there's a woman named Hagar. She is um, the maidservant of Sarah and, and Abraham. And when Sarah is struggling to become pregnant, she says to Abraham, why don't you take my maidservant, Hagar? And, and Hagar does become pregnant pregnant. And, and then that relationship between Sarah and Hagar starts to get messy, right? Like who could have seen that coming? And, and ultimately Sarah says to Hagar, like, Hey, you're out of here. Sends her away. And Hagar is out in the wilderness on her own, pregnant and alone, wondering how she's going to fend for herself. And the angel of the Lord appears to Hagar, the angel of the Lord. That's a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ shows up to this woman by herself 
And notice what she perceives about God in this moment. This is from Genesis chapter 16, verse 15. She declares, you are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. He is the one who sees. The disciples weren't invisible to Jesus in this moment. You aren't invisible to Jesus in this moment. And if you track the story throughout Mark's gospel, one of the things that he continues to bring up about who Jesus is, is his capacity to see the unseen. He sees you, and because he sees you, it's a reflection of who he is. Mark is drawing an intentional correlation between what we're discovering about Jesus and who we know God to be. Thirdly, Jesus is revealed as the one who draws near. The one who draws near is my youngest daughter and I, the other night, were watching uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window. Has anybody ever seen that? Classic, if you haven't, 1954 classic Alfred Hitchcock movie where um, there is a, Jimmy Stewart plays this man stuck in an apartment because he's broken his leg, he's in a wheelchair, and he entertains himself, passes the time, by just watching what unfolds in, in the apartment windows around him. And it's, it's um, um, like blazing hot. Everybody's got their windows open. And so he's got this direct sight into other people's lives. And he basically believes that he's uncovered a, a murder. And Grace Kelly plays his girlfriend in the movie. And he convinces her of this plot line. And so later on in the movie, Grace Kelly is out in the courtyard of this apartment building and she decides kind of on her own in that moment that she's gonna climb the fire escape and go look for evidence in the apartment where they believe the murder took place. And so she does so and she's in there, but, but Jimmy Stewart has the perspective of looking out and seeing what she can't see. And down the hallway, she sees uh, Raymond Burr plays this, he plays the, the bad guy. If you, if, if I'm giving this away, it was 1954. So you've had time. Um, he sees Raymond Bird's character, Lars Thornwall, returning to the apartment. And what I think Jimmy Stewart does so masterfully is like you can see on his face the terror that, that this woman that he loves is vulnerable in this place and he has no capacity to get to her. He sees it. He's watching it unfold, but there's nothing that he can do about it. He can't be present in that moment. See, look at verse 48. He says that they saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, here's what I want us to see. He came to them walking on the sea. His ability to see if not met with his presence, leaves us in the struggle alone, dependent on our own resources. But he came to them. Again, remember the question from the previous time on the Sea of Galilee, who is this then that even the wind and the sea obey him? And the answer is not only revealed in the act of drawing near, although that is significant, it's also revealed in the miraculous manner in which he does so. He came to them, Mark records, walking on the water. 
unless we look for some sort of logical way to rationalize this away, like that there was some shallow section of the Sea of Galilee, the Greek literally means on top of the water. Again, just as he did in Mark chapter 4 when he was on that boat and the wind and the waves obeyed him, Jesus is being revealed as the one who is authoritative over nature itself. In other words, we're seeing Jesus with the, the unlimited power that the Old Testament applied to the Creator. He's the one who speaks authority over these things. So they're discovering, as they see this, as they watch this, that, that the laws of nature don't apply to him because he created nature. He is the creator. So in this event here, we're discovering two things. You see at one hand the heart of Jesus to draw near as he does so, as he walks across the water in his power and ability to accomplish it. And this leads us to the last and I think the most profound revelation about who Jesus is in this passage. And that is simply that Jesus is the one who is the I am. He's the one who is the I am. Um, I've mentioned before that my family and I love to vacation on the beach. It's like our happy place. Maybe some of you can do that as well. But this summer, we had actually the opportunity to go twice, once with Cherry's family and once with my own family. On one of these trips, I was talking to one of the locals and asking a question about where something was or, or how to get somewhere or something like that. And he kind of casually mentioned it to me when I said we were going to the beach for the day. He said, oh yeah, if you live here, you don't go there. And I was like, what? Like you live by this view of the ocean, this incredible place, and, and you don't go there? Like that was like so offensive to me. For some, I'm like, I drove 18 hours in a van. You don't go there? Like, it's amazing how frequently we as human beings can be around the extraordinary, even the miraculous, and fail to see it. Sometimes we just, we don't go there. And we do this too, by the way. It's not just people that live by the ocean or in the mountains. Sometimes we, we fail to marvel at what is right in front of us. It says it was about the fourth watch of the night. This is verse 47, 48. It was about the fourth watch of the night, and he came to them walking on the sea, and he meant to pass by them. Hold on to that phrase. But they, were, but they saw him walking on the sea, and they thought it was a ghost, and cried out, for they saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. See, all, everything we've talked about this morning, all of it is important, but it's all leading to this. It's all leading to this revelation of Jesus. That phrase, pass by them, it, it reads a little bit awkwardly, I think, in the English. Um, like Jesus is almost like trying to sneak by or sneak up on them or something. But it's actually very significant. Because what Jesus is accomplishing there is he wants them to see him more fully. He wants them to understand who he is. And so it says that he wanted to pass by them. In the Old Testament, when you think about experiences, again, 
Jesus is drawing on, or Mark is drawing on their knowledge and experience of, of the Torah, of the Old Testament. So immediately when you read this as a first century Jewish man or woman, or you heard it read in the synagogue, you're remembering somebody like Moses on, on Mount Sinai as God is delivering to him the, the Ten Commandments. And he says to God, I just, I want to see your glory. And God says, no one can see my face and live. If you remember, he says he hides him in the cleft of the rock. And in Exodus chapter 33, verse 19, he says, but I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. He passes by him. In, in the prophet Elijah's life, he has this amazing victory over the prophets of, of Baal. And then he finds his life threatened by uh, King Ahab and Jezebel, and they want to destroy him. So he's out on his own, again in the wilderness, exhausted and afraid. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 11, the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Jesus here, as he passes by, his disciples in this miraculous way is revealing his transcendent majesty. He's revealing the fact that he is nothing less than the fullness of God. He not only shows who he is, but now then he also proclaims it. His response to them out of their fear is he says to them, take heart, it is I. That, that Greek phrase there is, is ego ami. It translates literally, I am. Jesus repeats the answer that God gave to Moses from the burning bush when Moses was being called to go to Egypt. And he says, well, who, who should I say sent me? And Yahweh speaks out of the burning bush and he says, tell them that I am who I am sent you. In Hebrew, that's the sacred name of Yahweh, of God. If you translate that into Greek, it translates as ego ami. When Jesus says, it is I, he said, I am the I am. Jesus applies the sacred name of God to himself. Right? Their assurance their comfort, it's ultimately discovered in the presence of the I am. Jesus is revealing himself to his disciples as God incarnate, as, as God in flesh. So there's, again, you got to remember, they're anticipating this, the arrival of the Messiah. And they fully expect that he's going to be somebody sent by God. He's going to act on behalf of God, he's going to have power and do the miraculous, and God is going to equip him, enable him to do all kinds of incredible things. And they believe that about Jesus. But Jesus is saying, I'm not only sent from God, I don't only wield power from God, I am God. This is what he's still getting them to arrive at. But notice how the text is. In the second half, it says, of verse 51, they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. So this, again, what's happening here just gets connected back to what Jesus did when he fed the 5,000. They did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Jesus isn't 
referring to the Pharisees this time when he talks about their hard hearts. See, there is still, in the lives of the disciples, there's still a disconnect. And in the crowds who are seeking to gather around Jesus everywhere he goes, there's a disconnect between who they want him to be and what they believe he came to do and who Jesus is revealing himself to be and what his ultimate mission is. I mentioned earlier that, that I would come back to that urgency when Jesus sent his disciples away. Mark's gospel doesn't record why he did that, if it was just if things were wrapping up, but then why the urgency in that? The Gospel of John notes that after Jesus fed the 5,000, which was probably 10 to 15,000 men, women, and children, that the crowd got so um, riled up by what Jesus was able to do that they sought there in that moment to crown him as king. Like, this is it. Like, this is everything we've been waiting for. He's He's here. This is the coronation moment. Let's declare Jesus king. We're going to march on Rome. He's going to free us from the oppressor. And Jesus sends everyone away. It seems very likely that, that the disciples were caught up in that vision of Jesus as well. That he had come to defeat an earthly oppressor. But Jesus is trying to show him, I've come to do so much more. I'm trying, I want you to see the fullness of who I am. And they're, they're getting it in bits and pieces. We'll see the apostle Peter, when Jesus asked the question, who do you say I am? He, he nails it. We'll talk about this in, in a couple of weeks. And then immediately also assumes that that means he's going to go to Rome and, and free the, the people of Israel from their oppressor. And Jesus says, this is not about an earthly kingdom. This is about a heavenly one. I'm doing, I'm doing so much more. One of the fundamental, critical needs of the church and our modern experience of what it means to follow Jesus is to elevate our understanding of who he is. If you and I, if we operate out of a diluted or diminished view of Jesus, if we view him as a really great teacher or this wise sage or even at this point, is, is one sent from God, capable of all kinds of incredible things. Hear me, that's not enough. He is the fullness of God incarnate come to us. This is who Jesus is demonstrating himself to be. And if we hold a lesser view than that, we will fail to live up to the mission that he gave us. We'll settle for, for some version that just says, well, let's get free from Rome. And Jesus is like, no, I'm, I'm here to free you from death. I'm here to free you from sin. I'm here to set you free so that you walk in relationship with the very God who created you. It's who he is. And he's showing himself to be the one who is the fullness of God in flesh. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you again um, that you are the one who sins and that you see us, that you draw near to us, and you do it all because you are the great I am. You're the fullness of God in flesh. Came to be one of us. Lord, forgive us when we settle for a, a reduced 
vision of you because that remains that means that we will operate in a reduced vision of your kingdom so lord open our eyes again to see you more fully to see and understand who you are and to follow in obedience to you as our authoritative king and it's in your name we pray